never tell anyone this secret. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound. I have a secret to tell you. Promise you promise not to tell anybody. I have a secret to tell And I believe there are two kinds of secrets. The secrets that we keep from other people and the ones that we hide from ourselves. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little specks of audio we find all over the world. On the air, on the net, at audio festivals near and far, wherever there's something interesting to be heard, we are all ears. Then we take the best of what's out there and bring it to you each week on ReSound. Well, I think keeping secrets is something that's very human. I have a secret. I secretly hope you're going to be miserable. I have a lot of secrets. But even more secretly, I hope you're going to be happy. I'll tell you this secret if you promise not to tell anybody else. I'm afraid that the only thing I like to do won't take me anywhere. I have a secret to tell you. I steal the coupon section from your newspaper every Sunday before you get up. I have a secret. I'll tell you, but you can't tell anybody else. When I was in college, my mother called me with big news. I knew she had big news, of course, because she prefaced it with, Are you sitting down? Then she proceeded to tell me that one of her most long-standing, closest friends, a woman whose family had known our family since before I was born, a woman who drove me to school every day, had left her husband for a man she'd been having an affair with for seven years. Seven years! Needless to say, people were stunned her husband being at the top of the list. We think we know the people we love, but just how knowable are any of us? Shh. Producer Pike Malinowski asked strangers, perfect strangers, to admit their secrets. And lo, what a bountiful harvest it was. The mouse in my kitchen poops in the silverware and I don't do anything about it. I slept with two male bodybuilders at the same time. One was married. I told her I was parking into this spot, but she wouldn't give it up. So when she left, I poured root beer soda on the windshield and hood of her car. I felt vindicated. I had sex with my girlfriend's mother. I'm cutting work today, sick day. I shaved my brother's head and blamed it on my sister. I still kind of miss Frankie. Write down a secret, put it in my bag and... Where's your bag? My bag's over there, I'll be here all, all day. Right. All right. Oh, okay. All right. That's fun, that sounds fun. All right. I went out to Brooklyn a sunny morning a couple of weeks ago and I stood myself in front of the main library and whenever someone came up the stairs I stopped them and asked them to write down a secret. I'm, I'm doing a radio project about secrets. <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm collecting secrets from people. And then it wouldn't be a secret, right? I'm sure I'm not the first person who said that today. No, you're not. <laughs> That's the whole point. Oh, so you're asking me for a secret? If you have a moment in the library. Anonymously, right? Right. Okay. Secretly, I hated my grandmother, although I was her favorite. So I got lots of sympathy when she died. I'm kind of creepy. I look people from grade school and junior high school up on the internet. 
I've never had an orgasm in my eight years of sexual activity. Hmm. I'll be here all day. You can Something think about it. Something I never told anybody? A, a secret. A secret. You know, I was married for 59 years and I didn't have many secrets, but he's gone now. All right. So maybe you have new secrets. New ones, huh? I wish. <laughs> think about it. I still have feelings for Jordan, but I can't let it be known. I showed my little cousin my body because he seemed curious. I like eating cat. My racism has become more severe since I moved to New York. I cheated on my boyfriend with an Argentinian horseback rider. We are conspiring to overthrow the US government. I've lied to my family about my lover's age. I am scared of clowns. What's your secret? My secret is that I got married without telling my parents. My mother does not know, and I've been married for a year. <laughs> That's a big secret. Why, why didn't you tell her? Uh, she, she's too much in my business, and I had a, she probably wouldn't approve of it anyway, so. She'll find out like some years later. I mean, she kind of got an idea because she works with my wife's family, um, but they don't talk. I don't have none. I cleaned out the closet. Got rid of the dirty laundry, yeah. How about an old secret? There's none. I, I, I talked about them. I let them go. Now I'm moving on. That's how you grow. No secrets. My secret is that my birthday is June 27th. I used to steal all my classmates' belongings when they went home. I did this all throughout elementary school. I was a big kleptomaniac. For some reason, I'm really turned on by the smell of bats. And although I very rarely get to sniff a bat, when I do, it brings me into overdrive. I own a piece of property that my family doesn't know about. If my girlfriend didn't feel weird about it, I wouldn't object to getting head in this here job placement section of the Brooklyn Public Library. I'm scared of writing my autobiography. What's my secret? What, why do you want to know? Because you want to know mine, so I want to know yours. Like something for something? I'm just, I'm just interested in secrets. I know, it's wonderful, it's interesting. But I actually haven't thought about my own secret, really. Oh. I have to do research before. Dig in yourself, see what's your darkest secret. Then go find another dark one. Secrets was produced by Pike Malinowski for WNYC in New York. Tell us your secrets, or anything else. We're very discreet. What happens at ReSound stays at ReSound. Okay, that didn't even make sense, but you know what I mean. You can write to us at ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. I tell all the kids I babysit that I turn into a mermaid at night. They always believe me. While others pray at church, I bow my head and think about the TV programs I plan on watching. I give decaf to customers who are rude to me. Shh. So what if you had a secret 
that was so secret, even you didn't know about it. Is that even possible? Well, it would be if you were endowed with a secret power or knowledge or specialness that was unbeknownst to you. In Judaism, there's an idea that there are 36 chosen people, just 36, who keep the entire world from falling apart. And here's the secret. They don't even know they're chosen. This next documentary is called Double Life, produced by Natalie Kestacher. It's on the quiet days that you can see them. If you look, on misty weekdays, when it seems that everybody's going about their business in silence. From a side street you approach. It's like a film but without sound. You watch. A teenage boy kisses an old lady. Happy New Year, Mrs. Klein. Mrs. Klein beams like a teenager. The barista sculpts a four-leaf clover in milk froth. The elderly man walks the more elderly man's dog. The council worker says, have a nice day, and means it. Who are you? The story of the 36. The uh, Talmud talks about uh, 36 beings who are unique and special, and uh, it suggests that um, the whole world is created uh, and held together by these 36 beings, and if one were missing, the world would collapse. Rabbi David Cooper from Colorado. So it's, a, um, it's an idea that there are beings that are hidden um, that uh, sometimes, in fact, don't even know who they are. And uh, one of the qualities of a Lamed Vav Tzaddik, Lamed Vav means 36. Uh, one of the uh, main traits of a Lamed Vav Tzaddik is humility. And they're said to have such humility that uh, they would never claim to be a Lamed Vav Tzaddik. So they're even hidden from themselves. And uh, the world, uh, if, if the world were missing these uh, beings at any point, there'd be no point and purpose for the world that would collapse. Well, the Talmud describes them as being pillars of strength, as if to say that the whole world is standing on these 36 columns. On a triggerboff from Sydney. In terms of qualities, it has this idea of a pillar being like the strength of a spine, as if to say that they have the spine to care about the world and have the compassion to see things that are ugly in the world or that need repairing in the world. And they're the people who somehow act to repair the world and repair broken souls in the world. As you approach the cars at traffic lights with your Coke bottle full of makeshift detergent, windows wind up, heads shake. No, we don't want you to clean our windscreens. You ignore them. You know there's no cash to be made from the head shakers because they're teaching you a lesson. No means no. But you'll clean their windows anyway 
and they'll stare straight ahead. You're teaching them a lesson. I commission you. With a guarantee of payment, you clean my windscreen just as well as those of the non-paying customers. That's your job. The lights turn green. The source for the 36 tzaddikim is found in the Talmud. And in the Talmud, quoting from the relevant sections, it says, There are not less than 36 tzaddikim, righteous persons, masters, in the world who receive the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence. Rabbi Label Wolf from Melbourne. The notion of Shekhinah, by the way, is a very interesting one. It's the feminine side of the Godhead. And just as there is a masculine and feminine side of the Godhead, in the way that the world and its component parts is outfitted, there's also the duality of masculinity and femininity. In fact, there's duality in all things of existence. Human beings, clearly, as you see, we have two hands, two feet, two eyes, two hemispheres of the brain, and also our perception of reality is dualistic, up, down, left, right, positive, negative, particle wave, proton, electron, binary system. And the purpose of life is to take the dualistic nature of the world and bring it into a state of unity, of oneness, which a tzaddik's foremost task is. Who are they? Normally, you give us two smiles a day. One for me, one for my old dog. You're a runner. I've never seen you walk. As I dawdle down the road in the morning, you set off on a run. You ask my name and tell me that yours is Viet. Viet as in Vietnam. A third smile today, and then you run off. So how do these, how do these righteous people repair souls and repair the world? That's a big question that the rabbis have been asking throughout the ages. And they always come up with these stories of people who are helping, but it's not obvious. So they might be a beggar on the street, or they might be a nurse in a hospital. They might be any type of person. And the sense is that it's more the way in which they live their lives than actually what they do externally that helps repair the world. Each time you see me, you bless me. Dressed in pink, you walk the streets of Bondi collecting frangipanis and hibiscus, fresh from trees or trudged into footpaths. It doesn't matter as long as you have flowers. You wear them in your long grey hair. Sometimes you scatter them on the pavement and from your temporary office you greet all that pass with a compliment. Hello beautiful man, beautiful woman, beautiful dog, beautiful backpacker. I ask your name and you pull out a credit card. Beautiful Al, I ask. No, beautiful all, you answer. It's double L.
The Hasidic movement began in Eastern Europe in the late 1600s. Uh, it started in, the, in Ukraine, and from there it spread throughout White Russia, Russia, Poland, Hungary, and pretty much took over Eastern Europe in its, in its breadth. Rabbi Moss from Sydney. The tradition that there are 36 hidden saints is one that preceded the Hasidic movement by many thousands of years. It was a part of mainstream Jewish belief. But within the Hasidic movement, it took on a bit of a new life because one of the big emphases of the Hasidic movement was the fact that simple people can have as direct a connection to God as a great scholar. And that because the soul is what really matters, not the brain necessarily, so somebody may not be famous as being very wise, but they may have a very deep connection to God or maybe a very holy person. And so the idea of a hidden saint fitted in very well with that Hasidic idea that, that simple people, we don't really know what they're about. You never really know who you're coming into contact with. So somebody may be a water carrier or a wood chopper, and nevertheless they're a very holy person and the whole world is dependent on them because... Our tradition tells us that the 36 tzaddikim, they hold up the world. The world is dependent on them. And so within the Hasidic movement, the idea of the, of the hidden tzaddikim, it became something very real, as if like anyone you meet, you just never know. You may have bumped into one. And the, the new respect that was given to, to simple people and people who were low on the hierarchy, uh, that was just brought to the fore and emphasized by the Lamad Vav idea. I started photographing the reemergence of Jewish life in Germany for uh, basically about 94. Um, and I started doing interviews of people who were at least living in Germany or were returning to Germany or have just come back to Germany, predominantly Jewish people. Todd Weinstein, the New Yorker who photographed the 36. So my curiosity of why Jews would return to a land where people wanted to basically destroy them just kept growing on me. And I decided to get more involved in the project by experiencing the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz in Poland. And I went there and there were 1,600 journalists there there were people from all over the world coming to Auschwitz to pay their respects to basically, from what I understand, Auschwitz is one of the most sacred burial grounds of the Jewish history. So I was very moved by that whole experience and I started kind of photographing around before the actual commemoration was really starting to happen. Just photographing what I was looking at, I just started seeing faces and spirits on the ground and in walls on the street by the railroad tracks that were coming into Auschwitz. And um, I always look for hope in things. and. And I, I was sensing that, that something helped the world continue for some reason, because it, it just seemed like such a dark time. I mean, visiting all those dark places, I kept asking myself, 
What could have saved the world? What could have saved the world? And nothing rationally came to my mind. And I knew about this story. And I was photographing these abstracts. And I said, well, maybe it was the 36 unknown. I said, maybe it was the 36 righteous individuals that helped keep the world together. And then I decided to use it in a very poetic way as a way of me sort of getting out of the project of the reemergence of Jewish life and sort of moving it forward from a dark place to a light place. The scribe, Torah returning to Auschwitz, Poland. Well, this is, this is black and white, and the day was, uh, was the commemoration of the 50-year anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, and it was in January 25th, 1995, and it was very cold that day. The scribe is the person who writes the five books of Moses, these scrolls. There's five of them, and every scroll is done in freehand, in Hebrew letters. And there were Israeli rabbis and American rabbis who wanted to bring the Torah back to Auschwitz as a metaphor that Jews are still there. It's the most sacred burial ground of the Jews in the world. And they had decided to carry the Torah back to Auschwitz. You can see that there's a figure carrying the Torah, one of the holy books. There's five books of the Torah, so this is only one of them. And it's kind of set in Auschwitz, Birkenau. And there's a watchtower in the background. And you could see that there's some remnants of some old buildings, but there's not much there anymore and you can see the railroad tracks also on the ground and you don't really see the figure's face it's covered so it has kind of a, a lot of ambiguity there Within Hasidic tales, a lot of stories surround around Sadikim, but not necessarily the hidden Sadikim. That the Hasidic movement emphasized the general concept of a Tzadik, which is a righteous person, not necessarily a hidden one, or not necessarily one of the 36 specific ones, but, but there are holy people in every generation that are sort of spread and sprinkled through the generations in order to give us inspiration and leadership and guidance. It's like we live in the world which is like a maze that we're trying to find our way around and there are certain souls that are just a little bit higher than us see a little bit further they see beyond the horizon a little bit and can guide us and inspire us so the Hasidic tradition talks a lot about these people about tzaddikim that we knew were tzaddikim the hidden tzaddikim the Lamad Vav tzaddikim often were people who were gruff or simple or there was there were no, not so much we knew about them until maybe after they died many things came out about their, their true history whereas 
the revealed tzaddikim are people who lived a life of righteousness, were themselves leaders, and the stories about them are, are told as inspiration of how what a human being can reach as well. So while the Lamed Vav stories do circulate a lot amongst the Hasidim, but more stories are about the tzaddikim that we knew, that we knew what tzaddikim. Certainly, the fact that somebody's a revealed tzaddik doesn't mean they're not also a hidden tzaddik. They could be. And in fact, we say that about, about many of our tzaddikim, that we only know the surface of who they are. We don't really know the, the true depth of, of their righteousness. And that's something that every revealed tzaddik is also a hidden tzaddik. So yeah, that's for sure. Um, and, but within the Hasidic movement, like there's not so much speculation. Is this person a hidden tzaddik, a revealed tzaddik? <laughs> they're a tzaddik and they're, they're somebody to, to learn from. And, uh, and so that's what they're respected for. But we always recognize that we can only see the surface because we, we don't have the eyes to recognize a tzaddik. But tzaddikim recognize each other. And there are many stories of the revealed tzaddikim who were in touch with the hidden tzaddikim. And they would send people to get a blessing from a certain person in a certain village who would seem to be just a, a simple guy. But the tzaddikim knew amongst themselves that this is one of the hidden tzaddikim and he would send people to him. particular town there was one place that if you were hungry, if you were poor, you didn't go. On the top of the hill there lived the richest man in the town and he never gave a cent to anyone. And consequently he was despised by everyone in the town and finally he died, good riddance. No one was going to say goodbye to him in his funeral, he would be buried quietly, peacefully without anyone witnessing. But strangely, word came that very important rabbi wanted to come and attend at the funeral of this man. And so, out of respect for the rabbi, all the townspeople also came and witnessed the funeral of this miserly man. But the following Friday, something very strange. All the townsfolk had lined up at the door of the rabbi. And each one had the same story. Rabbi, every Friday afternoon for 40 years, someone would put some money under my doormat so that I could buy bread and wine and candles for the Sabbath. It's not here. I don't know how to celebrate the Sabbath. And the rabbi gathered them round and said, Don't you see? It was the miser on the top of the hill who gave you this money. And if you go to that town you will see a plaque that says, The Holy Miser Lived Here. The 36 unknown that I photographed in Germany and Poland and in Israel are places where I was experiencing what I would call a feeling of transformation. I would walk into an area in Germany that is a place of remembrance and I would look at the environment and then I would start to really look and and it's, it's almost like a trance and you try to allow yourself for things to come to you rather than you come to things and then all of a sudden 
images start to appear. And that's kind of how my 36 came. The Cantor, Berlin, Germany. A wall in Berlin. It's a place of remembrance where people were living there who were deported from Berlin. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a place of remembrance. And on the wall was this, I saw this face singing. And the Cantor is the one who really is the transmitter from God's voice through him to people, through song. And I saw the cantor there. There would be people that would say the 36 are, uh, have a certain gender or maybe have a certain religious background. Uh, that's, that's not in my belief system. I think that the 36 are beings that could be not human, uh, sentient beings. And I have had experiences in different states of mind when an ant or a bee or a butterfly was a, was a special butterfly, a special being. And I remember a number of times, uh, depending upon what books I was reading at a particular time, I would, uh, I would discover a bee, and uh, we would have a conversation, and the bee would be doing some great task for the universe. And it's obviously using one's imagination in a, in a wonderful way, but um, I think it's too, um, too human-centric to assume that great beings have to somehow be in a human form. And uh, so a Lamed Vav Tzaddik, from my perspective, can take any form and present itself in any kind of way. And it doesn't even have to be a life form. It could be something else that um, is put in our path that opens up a whole new level of consciousness. The Seducer, Germany. It's basically oil on the street, like gasoline oil or some kind of oil that was left by cars or whatever. But what it is, it's the, it's the seducer. Her eyes, her lips, she's just incredibly beautiful. We are at war with pigeons, it seems. Even licensed animal rescuers will not help a pigeon out. But then there is you, my neighbour, who only sometimes says hello to me, but always praises my dog's beauty and intelligence. 
You walk up and down our street, scattering handfuls of wheat kernel to the pigeons' delight. They encircle you, cooing. Disgusting, says the man in the Elton John glasses. Why 36? There is a phrase in the Torah that says, blessed are those who wait for him. Blessed are those who wait on him. Lo is included, the letters Lamed Vav are included in that sentence. So it's often translated as, blessed is the 36. When you're reading Hebrew, particularly from a mystical perspective, you're always adding up the numbers because every letter represents a, a number. And so this is an idea that when you have the letter Lo, which appears many, many times in the, in the Torah, that represents the 36. And then we, uh, in interpretation of Torah, we pull it all together. And it, in this particular case, it just it has become part of the tradition, the custom of 36. In fact, there are some who see the story of the 36 in Abraham's argument with God over the number of people that would be needed in Stom, in Sodom and Gomorrah, to allow that town to continue to exist and not be destroyed. When I read that story, I see him going from 50 to 40 to 30 down to 20 and 10. I don't see 36 in there. But others who love to play around with the letters, the gematria, the numerical value, have seen indeed 36 in that story, 36 righteous people. Peter Pellech Jones, Sydney. The number 18 in Judaism is considered a beautiful number. Yud Chet is Chet Yud, is life. And the idea that there's double life, there are people who their life enables the rest of the world to exist, so you'd need 36 to double life. It's interesting that every single iota of existence has its place and its necessity, to the extent that if one small creature, as small as an ant or a gnat, were to be missing, this would affect the balance of reality. Everything is in a harmonious, perfect balance, only tipped by human behavior. So the fact that there are 36 sadikim and not 40 and not 25 has got to do with the same balance in existence. Some sources say that there were always 36 hidden sadikim and there are 36 revealed ones that correspond to them. And together that makes the number 72. The number 72 is significant because Amongst the names of God, there are 72 letter names of God, or there are names that numerically add up to the number 72. So 72 is a divine number. So 36 hidden, 36 revealed, that adds up to that. One of the things in Judaism is that everything's up for debate. We certainly don't have a unified position on anything at all. And in fact, the most respectful debate often takes place in Judaism amongst people who do disagree on things like this. And the wonderful thing is we have this tradition of the written law and the oral law. And the oral law is the system of interpretation, the system of turning things over. And we talk about 70 faces. Here's another number for you, 70. The 70 faces of Torah, 70 ways of reading every single thing that occurs in the Torah. 
every idea has at least 70 different facets, 70 different ways of looking at it. Now, as soon as I say that, and we know that that's a Jewish tradition, the tradition is anything but unanimity. The tradition is diversity. And it's strength in diversity because by recognizing that we can't possibly know. The whole thing about the tzaddikim is they're hidden. We don't know them. You look pale and worried. You enter shops and look at goods for a long time. You don't buy anything. You visit cafes and study menus. You always leave without ordering. Waiters frown and shopkeepers sigh impatiently. Late at night, I see you feeding the stray cats. The laborer, Krakow, Poland. It's a street scene in Krakow and I found these two pair of gloves laying on top of each other on the top of a shovel leaning against the, a car. It has a real feeling of someone being there. And I call it the laborer. It has a, evidence of man being there in the image. Totally natural, found completely found, not set up. The meaning of hidden. The higher the level of the rabbi, the more they saw the greatness of Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Kramer. Sarah Yochevet Rigla the writer who met one of the 36. A simple person looking on the outside saw what they saw. I mean, there was light that was shining from his face, and he treated everyone with such honor and such love and such joy. But the big, big rabbis said, this man is a Lamed Vavtsadik. They saw it. They understood that he's not just you know, a very good person, He's, he's one of the big guys. So how can someone be recognized as a hidden tzaddik? This is a question that begs the whole term, the, the Lamed Vav Tzaddikim being hidden, and how, therefore if we know who they are, how can they be a Lamed Vav Tzaddik? Because I thought they were hidden. So first of all, you should know that in the Talmud, when the concept is first mentioned, the word hidden does not appear. When the Hasidic movement came into being in the 18th century, they added the concept of hidden, that these people are not known. So in the case of Rav Yaakov Moshe Kramer, who was hidden in the sense that he lived on this poor rural Moshe, this community in north central Israel, he didn't write any books, he wasn't famous, he didn't do any of the things that the great rabbis of Israel do where they're in the limelight. He was hidden if, insofar as if anyone asked him who he was, are you a rabbi, people would ask him. He would say, no, I'm a farmer. He pretended he didn't know Talmud. 
all the great books of Jewish learning which qualify a person to be considered a Talmud Chacham, a great scholar. In Judaism, a person is given acknowledgement and honor according to how much Torah learning they have. Rabbi Yaakov Moshe claimed he didn't know anything. It wasn't true. He knew a lot, but he purposely kept it hidden. Untitled Jerusalem, Israel. It's a wall that contained peeled posters. And sometimes when there are posters on walls, an image goes over image, goes over image, and then one image gets peeled off and reveals part of the image underneath it, and that is peeled off and reveals another image. So sometimes it creates a third image, and that's what this image is. It's untitled. But if you look at it, it's kind of a face of someone who's got a beard, and you can see his eyes and his nose. It has an element of cubism, you know, it's kind of a Picasso-esque kind of face. He's such a beautiful man. He's such a simple man. When I interviewed the niece of Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Kramer, she told me how her father, who was Rabbi Yaakov Moshe's brother, who himself was not a religious man, but once they were talking in the family and somebody said that, you know, that his brother, Rabbi Yaakov Moshe, was a Lamed Vavtsadik, and he immediately shut them up, and he said, we were, you're never allowed to say that because you endanger his life if you say it. And Rabbi Yaakov Moshe himself once, when people were talking about, there was a Mr. Green who was, I believe, a shoemaker in B'nai Brak, a city in Israel, and people had this sense that he was, you know, perhaps a Lamed Vav Tzadik. And someone was speaking about this in the presence of Rabbi Yaakov Moshe, and he quieted them. He said, it's, it's dangerous to say that Mr. Green is a Lamed Vav Tzadik. It endangers him. I think this might have been the level of choice that Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Kramer was on, how much to reveal himself in order to help other people and how much to keep hidden in order to save himself. Because this major point is that hidden tzaddikim do not stay in this world long after their identity becomes known. So in many cases where people came to him who didn't have children or they needed a, a recovery from a dire illness or they wanted to get married or for all the things that people want, to the extent that he had a choice between giving them a blessing that then came true and then it was revealed who they were dealing with, that this was a tzaddik who was able to give blessings and they came true, or to not give. And then his hiddenness would remain intact, but the person wouldn't get, you know, the baby they wanted. And he chose, you know, to help the people, even at the risk, really, of the risk of his own life. I mean, there were people who felt that once he became well-known, that's why Rabbi Yaakov Moshe died. The meaning of humble. You're a homeless man named Jimmy, living on the rocks overlooking the sea. The council's trying to get rid of you, but the locals are rallying. 
Your photo was in the paper the other day, and even the BBC want to film you. It's all a bit much, you say. You're really nothing special. Just another person living on a ledge in a house with no walls. You wake each day at dawn to feed the birds. There are many people out there that we judge because of appearance, because of where they live, how they live, all sorts of things. And we assume that they're not particularly righteous people. Indeed, anyone could be one of the righteous people on whose merit we live. You know, when Mother Teresa was alive, there were people who did suggest that maybe she was the one of the Tzadikim. And that might, be, might have indeed been so. But what concerned me was they waited for her to be famous or well-known and then said, ah, one of the Tzadikim. My argument is it's probably not someone who's in the news. It's probably somebody who is doing a good job, I don't know, um, road digger that adopts children in need. I don't, I don't know. It could be anyone. And one of the traditions, in fact, the most predominant tradition is the Tzadikim themselves don't know their Tzadikim because that's part of their righteousness. Part of their righteousness is the humility not to think of themselves as righteous. So we certainly can't identify them. The idea that suggested that uh, it's possible for the 36th Sadikim to be so humble that they don't realize their status um, is not only paradoxical, but I think uh, practically impossible. The very process of becoming a Tzaddik means a process of enormous growth of awareness and responsibility and sense of duty and filiality to the world as such. There's no way known that a Tzaddik can practice his or her capacities in the very on-the-ground approach which needs to be done at practical levels without a full self-awareness of one's giftedness. Certainly how one displays that giftedness or hides it would point to the humility. But there's a very interesting differential in Jewish teaching between false humility and true humility. The Hebrew term is anav, anivot is the noun, and the epitome of humility in the Jewish tradition is Moses, who's actually described in the Torah itself as the most humble of all people. Now, look at the personality of Moses, and you certainly don't find a quiet, self-effacing individual who turns the other cheek. Quite the contrary. He's a very strong, seemingly dictatorial, more likely highly assertive individual who was a uh, uh, general, who was a uh, prime minister, who was uh, chief justice, all locked into one, and certainly not the kind of imagery that we would point to a uh, self-effacing, humble individual. So the question is, how is such a person to be viewed as humble? So the Midrash comes to our rescue and notes as following, and says that if someone else were to be given the same gifts that Moses were given, Moses would say, how wonderful that they have been given even greater gifts than I. So it's really an issue of how one 
recognizes one's giftedness. If it's because of one's own prowess and uh, achievement, then that's the antithesis of humility. If there's a recognition that it comes from above and you are duty-bound to use that gift in the way that it's been offered to you from above, then that is appropriate humility. So it includes assertiveness, it includes action-oriented behaviour, it includes uh, all what is required to practice dutifully and responsibly to improve the world as such. To me, that requires high consciousness, and therefore I can't accept the proposition that you can have tzaddikim who are unaware of themselves of being tzaddikim. The Architect Jewish Museum, Berlin, Germany. It's an image of the new Jewish Museum that was just about to open in Berlin. And there are parts of the building in the background. And in the foreground is the memorial for the six million, remembering the six million who perished in the Holocaust. And as I was looking in this pathway down to the center of the image, it revealed the face. It was inspired by the architect who designed the new Jewish Museum in Berlin. And I loved the building so much, and I thought about the building, and I thought about the architect Lieberskin of the building and I called it the architect. That's how it got the name. As being one of the 36. like a Rubenesque model on a park bench, knitted beanie pulled down over your eyes, a Marlboro in each hand, you're humming the bolero. Lessons from the 36. We'll never know whether we met one of those Lamed Vavnikim, one of those 36 righteous. So part of the whole teaching of the 36 is that we need to treat every single human being as if they're one of the 36. Another way of looking at it is something that I like to do, which is if we look at not that there are specifically 36 individuals in the world, but that there are acts that one can do that one would do if he or she were a Lamed Vav Tzaddik. And seeing as we don't recognize ourselves as Lamed Vav Tzaddikim, then why not just pretend we are? 
And so therefore, anytime we engage a situation, we might stop to consider, what would a Lama Dvapsadik do in this situation? And then we do it. Our tradition does say that to be a tzaddik, you have to be born with the soul of a tzaddik. Not everyone could become one. A tzaddik is something that's reserved for, for very few souls. But even if they're born with the soul of a tzaddik, doesn't mean they're going to activate that soul. doesn't mean they're going to actually reveal it and live up to it. So somebody who has reached the level of a tzaddik, whether it be hidden or, or revealed, it's a human being who's gone through the effort of doing that. But for the rest of us, we'll never become a tzaddik, and we actually don't have to tribe to become a tzaddik. It's important, in fact, in, in the Hasidic tradition to be very realistic about who you are. That if, if you're not born a tzaddik, that's fine. Your job is not to be a tzaddik, not to be perfect, not to reach such a level of holiness, but to actually struggle with your own inner struggles and your own inner battles and to reach as far as you can. And the battle, that's your mission. A tzaddik doesn't have that inner battle because they've got such a level of purity and holiness, they don't struggle to do the right thing or to do what's good. One of the Psalms says, Kol Haneshama Every living being praises God. And there are so many beautiful teachings. Um, in the Talmud, there's a teaching of rabbis discussing who's a righteous person. And, and they say, you know, when you see a worm and they're crawling in the ground and they're doing what a worm is meant to do, in the most holistic, harmonious way with their environment and connection to God. And these rabbis say, if I could just be myself the way the worm is itself, then I would be one of those righteous. So they're not actually saying that the worm is righteous, but they are saying that um, that the worm is an example of total harmony with the creation and with the creator. And if we could be like them, then we would be embodying the tzaddik part of ourselves. The Healing Hand, Stieglitz Memorial, Berlin, Germany. The Healing Hand is a very poetic image of a, of a mirrored Gedinkstadt, which is a place of remembrance in the center of Stieglitz. It's a huge block mirror that reflects the sky and the buildings around it. And on the mirror are these stencils of all the names of everybody that was deported there, as well as a stencil of the Jewish synagogue. And I took this reflection in the place of remembrance, and I found the healing hand. What happens if the number drops below 36? It seems that the number 36 is a necessary number. There have to be 36 Tzadikim for the world to survive and if there wouldn't be 36 souls of this level so then somehow the world wouldn't be able to continue and perhaps that's why there was this subculture this secret society of people that would make sure that there'd be 36 and if one died they'd make sure there'd be somebody else that could be initiated into this secret society one of the sources says that God spread the souls of Tzadikim through the generations to make sure there'd be enough 
at all times. So there always will be, it's a guarantee almost, that there'll always be 36 tzaddikim. It'll never fall below. The thing that I'm saying is that I'm in great belief that the 36 are here right now and that they are helping somehow the world keep some sense of stability because as you know the world right now is in is in a very deep dark peril and I believe and I'm hopeful that the 36 are here to make any corrections that need to be done. It's on the quiet days that you can see them, if you look. On misty weekdays, when it seems that everybody's going about their business in silence. From a side street you approach. It's like a film but without sound. You watch. A teenage boy kisses an old lady. Happy New Year, Mrs. Klein. Mrs. Klein beams like a teenager. The barista sculpts a four-leaf clover in milk froth. The elderly man walks the more elderly man's dog. The council worker says, have a nice day, and means it. Who are you? Double Life, from producer Natalie Kestitcher of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. What is the sound of a secret? ReSound is collecting interesting sounds, and we challenge you to record one and send it to us. Just give it a shot. Send us an MP3 file to thirdcoastfestival at gmail.com. I sit in public and pretend to read, but I'm actually eavesdropping on your conversation. I'll tell you my secret if you swear to God not to tell anybody else. I didn't want to come home. I will never tell anyone this secret. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival, an independent media arts organization in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. ReSound is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Carly Nix is our trusty intern. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear thousands of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. The Third Coast Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, and sponsorship from Chicago's Navy Pier, American Airlines, and ExploreChicago.org, the city of Chicago's official tourism website. The festival is produced in partnership with the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and was founded by Chicago Public Radio. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. 
ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. Shh.